Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Last Sunday, I'm not much of like a college basketball guy, okay? Just honest here. Uh, I haven't filled out a bracket in probably 15 years. Um, but last Sunday, I was watching, you know, March Madness. I wasn't really watching it. I don't even know who was playing, you know, one team and another team. And one of the teams won the game. Um, but as the game was ending, it's like Sunday afternoon, you know, kind of going into evening. And every Sunday night or most Sunday nights, I call my parents. Uh, so the game was kind of ending. I'm sort of not really paying attention, but sort of paying attention. And, and the game comes to an end while I'm on the phone with my parents. Okay. And uh, as the game ended and I'm like only half paying attention, the next thing that came on was 60 Minutes. You guys know this show? Tick, 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 right? It's a little bit unnerving for some of us. Um, 60 Minutes comes on and I'm paying about as much attention to 60 Minutes as I was the basketball game, okay? Only sort of like, you know, I'm talking to my mom, talking to my dad and listening and like, but I see this like they're, they're like talking about the Navy, the U.S. Navy, and I, and I don't really know what all they were saying about the Navy, but the thing that was notable to me as I was listening to this is they had a Republican congressman and a Democratic congresswoman sitting next to each other agreeing about something. And immediately you're like, you, I, you get it, right? Don't you get the shock factor? Like, how do, how do we get politicians on either side to agree about anything? And it was stunning to me. Again, I don't know what they were trying to do with the Navy, but they were agreeing. And it was shocking to me. And I, I wish I could like communicate to you the degree of surprise that I stared at this television with, right? Because it's so contrary to the way our nation works, right? Like if you think about Congress, you're like, what, what you probably think of is gets nothing done, right? Can't agree about anything right? Like whatever posture one takes, the other takes the polar opposite. And we tend to think, oh, well, it's just Congress. They're just so divided. But it's really a microcosm of our nation, is it not? Haven't you seen that in our country, that we're just so divided? We're so far apart from one another. We're on polar opposite ends of everything. Over the last three years, right, we watched all of this stuff. Like, should we mask or shouldn't we mask? Do black lives matter or do blue lives matter? Right? Do you remember this? Do, should you get vaccinated or shouldn't you get vaccinated? Right? Back and forth, back and forth. And what we ended up, you know, torn apart about, we ended up on, on both ends. And being a pastor, for those in, in this room who, who know what it's like to be a pastor, was an exhausting thing. Because here's, I love all of you. Do you know you're sitting next to people who are on the opposite end of the spectrum from you? And it's an exhausting thing to be in the middle trying to go, hey, guys, we all love Jesus together, don't we? Right? But don't you see this in our culture? That we get further and further apart from one another. And I want to let you in on a little secret. I'll tell you just a little secret. Problems don't get solved on the polar ends. Do you realize that? Increasingly in our culture, we're getting further and further apart from one another. And yet problems are solved when different people interact with each other in the middle. 
people who have different convictions and different beliefs and different understandings of the way the world works, they come together and they make a decision based on the good of the people that they govern or the good of the people that they're over. Do you see this? Which should immediately raise a problem for us because as a culture, we're further and further apart from the place where real progress and decisions get made. Do you see that problem? And we're accelerating further and further apart. Have you seen this? Further and further apart. And let me just say this, just really candidly, there's no voice really actively speaking into the, hey, we should be more together. There's nobody who's actively leading that direction. And so the question I want to look at, or I want to think is, how does, how does this trend get reversed? Is there any way for us to come back to the middle and work together with one another, even as we disagree with one another? And maybe more importantly, because you're in this room, is, does Jesus have anything to offer? Do the people of Jesus have any hope whatsoever of reversing this trend? Or are we just consigned to demolition? We're coming near the end of this series, He Gets Us, and what I've told you is that in this series is that one of the implications that God became a man in Jesus is that Jesus understands what it's like to be human. God gets what it's like to be you and to be me. And maybe more importantly today is Jesus understands what it's like to be opposed, to have people who disagree strongly with what he believed. And yet Jesus offers us a different way from our society on how to interact with those who oppose us. I'm calling this message, we can disagree without disowning one another. We can disagree without disowning one another. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to look at the Bible. So Lord, I do welcome you here. And God, even as we talk now about the ways we interact with people who oppose us. I recognize, Lord, that that stirs stuff up in all of us. That it stirs up this, what if they're wrong? It stirs up all kinds of emotions inside of us. And yet, Jesus, you have invited us into a different way of being human. And so, God, I pray that as I speak, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me, that you would give me your words, that I would be able to communicate clearly what is on your heart. Would you put power on this message in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. So let's take a look. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. And like I said, one of the amazing things about Jesus is that he shows us how to be truly human. So not only is Jesus Savior, but he's also a model for us for how to be human. And we're going to take a look at this passage. Now, immediately as you turn to it in your Bible, what you will discover is we're going to begin at verse 38, and it's right in the middle of a section of Scripture. There's a whole dialogue happening around what I'm going to show you. But we're not going to look at all of the parts because I want to look at it from a different perspective. I'll tell you what's happening all around. Jesus casts this demon out of a guy, and the guy gets healed as a result of it. The Pharisees look at Jesus, and they go, wait a minute. We think you're casting out demons by the prince of demons. And so Jesus is like, essentially, no, I'm not. That's my paraphrase. You can, 
you can appreciate that. I just cut out like 15 verses. Jesus is basically like, no, I'm not. That's not what's happening. And then they say, well, if that's not what's happening, we want you to show us a sign. Would you prove that you're from God? And I want you to pay attention here to how Jesus exchanges with the, with the Pharisees. Because if you don't know this, the Pharisees are like enemies, right? They're opponents of Jesus. seems like every time Jesus turns around, the Pharisees are upset about something. And they're ticked off about how he did something or some posture he took, right? So I want you to pay attention to how Jesus interacts with these people. As we look beginning at, uh, it's Matthew 12, beginning at verse 38. It says this. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the, gener- of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Right in the middle of this section, Jesus has performed a sign. And the Pharisees go, hey, hey, hey wait a minute. If you are who you say you are, do a sign for us. Do another one. Will you pull another party trick out of your hat, right? Because what got them in this dialogue is that Jesus had done a sign, but they were like, well, wait a minute. If you can do a sign on command, maybe then we'll believe you, right? If you would just do what we ask you to do, we'll believe you. Now, certainly when Jesus gets confronted like this, tension goes up. Isn't that what happens in your life? When somebody opposes you and somebody comes at you and confronts you, your tension inside goes up, does it not? Like imagine if you were this guy, you're in this same space, as soon as somebody on the opposite side of the political spectrum comes to you and and says, if you'll give me one good reason in support of your case, I'll stop opposing you. Think about that for a minute. Your Democrat and Republican comes to you and says, if you can give me one good reason. Your Republican and Democrat says, if you can give me one good reason why you believe what you believe, just demonstrate one thing for me, I will stop opposing you. What would happen? What would happen inside of you? The tension would come up a little bit. You get a little anxious. And then one of a number of things probably is going to happen, right? Some of you will go, okay, what's the best argument I have? Because I'm going to do it, and they'll leave me alone. If I can just put my best argument, it's airtight. Some of you would do that. Some of you would go, wait a minute. There's no way you're ever going to stop opposing me, so I'm just going to keep my distance from you, right? Wouldn't that be what some of you would do? I'm going to back away and keep my distance so that you can't hurt me anymore. Or some of you will go, I need somebody on my side. And so you'd go to somebody else and say, can you believe what they said? Can you believe? We're together, right? They're bad. Wouldn't you do that? Some of you? Those would be some of the the reactions you might have, which is what makes Jesus' reaction so significant. 
Jesus doesn't do any of those things. What Jesus does is he stands firm in his convictions, but he doesn't distance himself. He doesn't push them away. He engages in the dialogue. He stands firm in his convictions, but he stays connected with the people who oppose him. Isn't this what our culture needs? One of you. Okay. <laughs> hey, Elliot, isn't this what the, the culture needs? We need people who are going to stay convicted and at the same time connected. Wouldn't you say that's what people need? Love you, buddy. <laughs> He's like, wait a minute, what'd you call me out for? <laughs> but he doesn't just do it here. He doesn't just do it here. Matthew 16. It's like a few chapters later. Check this out. It says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. It's the Pharisees again with their good buddies, the Sadducees. These two don't really get along. Verse 2, he replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus didn't do the party trick they asked for in chapter 12. They come back four chapters later, and they're like, come on, Jesus, do it now. Wouldn't you do it now? Why don't you just do what we want and we'll leave you alone And yet he stays convicted and stays connected. Do you see this? You see, Jesus never pushes the Pharisees away and says, get out of here, I don't want anything to do with you. He stays connected to the very people who oppose him. Do you see how stark that is compared to the way our culture works? What I want you to see is how Jesus engages with those who oppose him because Jesus is offering us something here that we desperately need. Or at least Elliot and I agree that we desperately need this. Jesus offers us something. You see, here's what happens a lot of times. We read the words that Jesus says, but we fail to pay attention to how Jesus interacts. And I think there's just as much value in paying attention to how Jesus interacts as there is in paying attention to what he says. He's having this dialogue with people who disagree with him, which is what we need. You see, Jesus holds in tension something that our society, and quite frankly, most of us in this room probably are tempted to resolve. He holds in tension this need to be completely defined as an individual, and this need we all have to be connected to human beings. And he holds them in tension. He says, I am completely defined, but I will stay connected to you. The tension is between individuality and togetherness. And we know this tension, even if you've never named it, you know this tension. We're going to go on like a little bit of a journey, okay? You ready? You want to go on vacation? Anybody not want to go on vacation? We're going to do a pretend vacation right here. You ready? So I want you to imagine for a minute that I'm sending you on a a weekend vacation. I know, I, I only have enough money for a weekend. I don't even have that. But I'm sending on a weekend vacation. I'm going to send you far away from all the circumstances of your life to this cabin that's far away. 
It's a chance for you to unplug and there will be games for you to play. And like, you know, there's a hot tub there. There's plenty of just amazing food. You're just going to be able to breathe for a little while and get away from the stresses of life. And I only want to offer you one thing that I need you to do while you're on this vacation, okay? I'm going to hand you a journal. Some of us, you remember how to write. We all type now. Do you what I want you to do in this journal is I want you to take a writing utensil. And as honest before God as you're able to be, I want you to write down in this journal your convictions, your deeply held beliefs. Your values, the things you care about that have been formed out of your experience of life. And you have to be completely honest. Now, let me just tell you, nobody's going to read this journal. Okay? Nobody's going to read the journal. You just have to write completely honest in it. Would you take that vacation? Okay. I would imagine that most, if not all of us, could write our convictions down. Right? You have these deeply held beliefs and convictions. And if you knew that nobody was ever going to see them, you could write honestly. You could write the things that you truly believe. But now suppose I bring you back from your vacation. And I'm like, hey, I hope it was a great vacation. Bring the notebook back with you. Because what we're going to do is we're going to put you in all the spaces that you go into in your life. And I want you to read everything in that journal in each of these spaces. So you're going to go to work and you're going to take the journal and you're going to get all of your coworkers around the table and you're going to open it up and you're going to say, well, let me read to you my convictions and my values. And then you're going to close that and now you're going to come to church and you're going to sit down with all of these fine people. You're going to open that journal and you're going to read it before everybody in the church. Then you're going to close the journal and then you're going to go home and you're going to sit down at the table and bring all of your family, extended family too. It's like Thanksgiving. Think of that, you know, like that drama in your family, right? And you're going to open the journal and you're going to read all of this to your family. And then you're going to close the journal and you're going to take it to your neighbors. You're going to get a neighborhood cookout and you're going to make some hot dogs and other processed meats. And you're going to open the journal and you're going to read to your neighbors all of your values and your convictions. Are you nervous yet? Because the thought of that probably raises a little bit of tension and anxiety in you, doesn't it? Because when you thought you were writing your values and your convictions that nobody was going to read, what you displayed was your most authentic you, right? You wrote in this journal authentically who you are. This is actually what I believe. But as soon as we put other people around, you start editing what's in that journal, don't you? You start saying, well, if I read that, they're going to get upset, right? I say I value family, but I don't value this family. I have these political political convictions, but I know I work with a bunch of people who don't. And what do we do? I'll read just some of my convictions. Or where I wrote that this was one of my convictions, I'll flip it because I know what you guys think. I think I know what you think. Isn't that what you do? At some level, when you get around people, you start to edit what it is that you think and believe. And what I'm displaying to you right here is that you know the tension between individuality, your most authentic you, 
and trying to be together with other people. And you recognize that as soon as those two things come into confrontation, you're going to have to err one way or another, don't you? Don't you know that that's the way that you, that you live life? Some of you are like, I never do that. All right. There will be prayer for you later. Because what I recognize is that all of us hold these convictions until the confrontation comes. And then the question is, will I still hold these when the confrontation comes? And most of us resolve the tension one way or another. Most of us resolve the tension one way or another. We either assert ourselves completely individually, or we give up every bit of individuality we have and we just become like the group, right? Some of you are like, I don't understand. All right. If you assert yourself completely individually... Think about the person who's a bully who says everybody else has to be just like me or they need to get out of the way. Right? This is saying my way or the highway, everybody else has to be just like me or I'm going to run you over. It's the, the, the Mark Driscoll, like either get on the bus or get run over by the bus, but the bus ain't going to stop. Thanks for that. <laughs> You've heard this before, some of you. It's the bully, right? It's the, I'm going to call you names and make you get in line or I'm going to run you over because I'm asserting myself as an individual. Some of you are like, I, that's what I do. I know. Or maybe you don't like run people over, but the other way you assert your individuality is you say, I don't like the confrontation, so I'm going to cut you out of my life. I don't like the discomfort that I find myself in, so I'm just going to wall you off. You stay out there. By the way, this is the advice of most social media right now. As long as you can call someone toxic, social media will give you the, 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 the uh, ability or the, the permission to cut people out of your life, right? You don't need that kind of negativity. Do you see this? Isn't that what social media tells you? You don't need that kind of negativity. They're toxic. Cut them out of your life. It's the same thing. You're resolving the tension to individuality. You're saying, if you don't like who I am and what I'm about, I don't want anything to do with you. It's the same thing as the bully who runs people over. You just do it in another way. You run away from people. Right? Do you see this at play in your life? Some of you don't resolve it to, to individuality. Some of you resolve it to togetherness. Right? Some of you will, will say, these are my convictions unless everybody else disagrees. I hold these convictions until I'm in a room full of people who don't, and then I'm, I'm like these guys, right? Hey, I'm a full-on Jesus follower until I'm around all these people who are making fun of Christians, and then I nervously chuckle and I don't say anything. Right? I have all these things to say about what I think about that leader. Some of you are doing this to me, right? I have all these things that I think about you, Derek, and I don't like you, and I don't like this thing. But the minute I walk into the circle you're talking, you change that conviction. Do you see that? And maybe it's not me. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your spouse. You have all these thoughts and convictions about how the world is until those people get close. And then you say, oh, never mind. No, we're actually really good. Do you see this? Hopefully somewhere you have found yourself in this spectrum. 
Because our tendency is to resolve the tension that Jesus calls us to hold. You see, both of these resolving of tensions is not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus demonstrates for us something else. He demonstrates the ability to hold on to your convictions while staying connected to people who think different things. You're like, why does that matter? It matters because we can't accomplish the mission he's called us to unless we are able to do the same thing. Do you know that? Some of us want to do evangelism by yelling at people and bullying people. Some of us want to do evangelism by staying far, 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 far away. And if anybody ever happens to ask about Jesus, I'll answer the question. Some of us want to do evangelism by walking into a crowd of people who are living all the the worldly ways. And all of a sudden, when we're in that space, we don't look much like Jesus anymore. Because we've resolved the tension. Jesus invites us into something else. See, because we're kingdom of God people who have been invited to engage with the people who are stuck in the kingdom of darkness and extend the welcome of the kingdom and disciple people who come out of the kingdom of darkness. By definition, that means we're going to be regularly engaging with people who disagree with us. And oh, by the way, the call is to do this in the same way King Jesus would do it. Do you know it's no good to win people to Jesus in ways that Jesus wouldn't win them? Do you know that? That Jesus shows up to the most repulsive of people and welcomes them and loves them. It's no good to do the mission of Jesus in a way Jesus wouldn't do it. In other words, we're going to have to be able to be completely defined as authentic individuals, while at the same time staying connected in loving relationship with people who disagree with us. It seems a lot less simple now, doesn't it? So how do we do that? Here again, Jesus is our model. And I'll tell you what Jesus does. We're going to look at this passage again. The way we do that is we live out of something, of an identity that is unshakable. That's what Jesus shows us. Jesus lives out of an identity that is unshakable. Let me read uh, verse, uh, beginning at verse 40 again. And I want you just to pay attention to the ways that Jesus defines himself. It says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. See, Jesus identifies himself in rapid succession as the Son of Man, as something greater than Jonah, and as something greater than Solomon. And this is not Jesus just arrogantly throwing out terms like, you know, I'm I'm pretty great. No, these are all things that God the Father has given him as identity that are unshakable. And he's living into an identity that God the Father has spoken over his 
life. Think about it for a minute. All the ways that you've identified yourself over the course of your life. What are all the identities that you've held over the course of your life? How many of you, at some point, probably in high school, identified yourself, show of hands, as a jock? How many of you were like, I was a jock in high school? It's a handful of you. How many of you identified yourself as a band geek? More of you. More of you. How many of you just identified yourself as like a brainiac? Okay, okay. Right? You all have made identities for yourself at some point in your life, right? I used to identify, identify myself as a hockey player. I know you look at me now and you're like, ah, oh, I don't think so. But back in the day, I looked about like I do now and I still played hockey. But I haven't played hockey in decades. Can I still identify myself as a hockey player? Seems wrong, right? Or I, was, I, I, would, I lived two decades of my life identifying myself as a pilot. I still have a pilot's license, but I haven't flown an airplane since July. Seems wrong to identify myself as a pilot, does it not? You see, there's all these things that we've identified ourselves as that change and they shake. There's probably countless ways you've identified yourself, right? What I've discovered is that some of those ways are really painful to lose, are they not? Some of us identified ourselves as a husband or a wife, and then the marriage ended. Some of us identified ourselves as a parent, and then we lost the child. Not only do you lose a child, you lose your identity as well. Right? Some of us identified ourselves by our career, and then the job went away. Not only did I lose the job, I lost the career as well. Maybe you identified yourself by the friends that you had, right? I was running in this friend circle, and then we weren't friends anymore. Maybe you identified yourself by your financial status. You know, I'm a rich person. I was going to say, then the dot-com boom happened. That just ages me again. Some of the younger people in the church are like, what's the dot-com boom? Do you see what I'm trying to say? What I have found is that there's only one true identity that is unshakable. It's the one God gives you. It's the one God gives you. Everything else is open to, to shaking. Look at our culture. It doesn't matter what you identify yourself as. It's movable. The only unshakable identity is the one God gives you. When people are like, who's Derek? I say, I'm the beloved of God. Whatever else you identify me as, I'm the beloved of God. Because what I have discovered is that God loves me. And everything else comes behind that. That's the only identity that, that is never shakable, is that you are the beloved of God. Everything else is shaky ground. And what it means to be the beloved of God is it means that you have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness by the sacrifice of Jesus. That you now no longer have to question whether you have value and purpose and meaning because God, your Father, loves you. Sometimes my kids will be like, I don't really love you anymore. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. God loves me. It's a true statement, isn't it? 
I want my kids to love me, but do you know what? So long as God the Father loves me, if people don't like me, that's okay. What it means to be the beloved of God is that you never have to wonder if you have a family because he welcomes you into a family. What it means to be the beloved of God is that he puts the orphan into families. That if you feel all alone in all of your life and nobody gets you and nobody understands you, he invites you into family. What it means to be the beloved of God means that you have an inheritance that's kept safe for you. You have an eternal inheritance that nobody can mess with. Do you know what that does when it comes to standing on your convictions but trying to be connected to other people? It gives you everything you need. That you can actually be present with people who disagree with you, who disagree with everything that you are without feeling some need to prove your worth and value to that person. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what you want anyway? You go to work, you have the day, and you were trying to pretend and make people like you, and you go home and you just feel ashamed of yourself. You're like, I don't believe that. That's not who I am. Because all the time you're trying to pretend, make people like you, but if you know that God loves you, you can show up in those spaces and be completely the beloved of God and yet still love those people and feel no need to make them like you. Do you know that's the way this actually works when we engage in the mission of God? You see, when you're secure in your identity as the beloved of God, you can stand in the tension and be completely present with people who believe differently than you without having the anxiety of needing to change them. I watch all the time the way Christian people engage the world around them. It's so anxiety-driven because we can't let people have the dignity of believing something else without having our, like, maybe I'm wrong if they believe something else and I don't tell them that they're wrong. What does that mean about what I believe? Oh, no, 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 I have convictions, absolutely. But I also believe that Jesus is after you. And so I can be present with you and love you. Do you know that's the best way to do evangelism? Like, it's the best way. Because what you do is you offer somebody the dignity and the humanity of having their own ideas and their own thoughts and their own beliefs and their own experiences and their own perspectives. And when the beliefs you hold offer someone else the dignity of being human, do you know your beliefs look more interesting? <laughs> do you know that? When I don't have to force you to believe what I believe, but I'm confident in what I believe, and I'm confident that if it's true, eventually you'll come to that awareness, it makes it more compelling. Some of you are like, is that true? Yes, it's true. You should try it. You should try to be with people who believe different things than you without having to change them and fix them. Because here's what I know, and I'll bring it to a close here. People are tired of being yelled at. Do you know that? People are tired of being ostracized. People are tired of being judged. People are tired of being condemned. People are tired of being manipulated and bullied and coerced. And if you ask people who are far from Jesus, 
This is a lot of their experience of the people in the church. They're tired of it. But here's what I believe. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.